Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 25 minutes to 9 the time. Time for your Mediated Conversation this Wednesday morning. On Monday, both the Human Rights Commission and the Commission for the Promotion and Protection of Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Communities released their reports into the violence in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng in July 2021. Most of the headlines, as you know, have been about the findings of the Human Rights Commission, that it could find no evidence of a link between the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma and the violence which occurred immediately afterwards. But one of the most important findings of the CRL Commission was about the situation in Phoenix near Durban. It was there that many people died in what appeared to be racial violence. Well, there are many different testimonies about what happened. In short, it appears Indian people set up barriers and in some cases killed black people who approached them. It also appears that deliberate disinformation on social media, and I understand WhatsApp groups and voice notes, was used to incite violence or instigate of violence. Of course, there are claims that the violence sort of went the other way as well. It is these findings that we will focus on this morning. First, from the CRL Commission, which wrote the report. The chair of the commission is Professor David Mossama. Then, someone who's played a role in studying the situation in Phoenix and watching it very closely, Crispin Hemson, is an out former director at the International Center for Nonviolence in Durban. And then the role of disinformation. If people could instigate violence in Phoenix, what other aspects or impacts could disinformation have? Nomshadu Lubisi in Kosunkulu is the Communications Manager at Media Monitoring Africa. We start then with the Chair of the CRL Commission, Professor David Musama. Professor, good morning and thank you for your time on SAFM this morning. Uh, good morning, Africans, and your listeners at, at home. In your findings, you say you found that racism is prevalent in Phoenix. What do you mean? What's happening there? Um, the... Findings with regard to racism was part of um, the inputs. You remember that we were engaging communities because part of our concern really is the breach or the breakdown of relationship, um, for of which this commission is concerned to protect the rights of cultural, religious, religious and linguistic communities. And secondly, to make sure that there's peace, there's humanity, uh, coexistence, and uh, on the basis of equality, and, and so forth and so forth. So these are the elements that we wanted to address and see what was the breakdown and what the cause of the breakdown. And of course, the issue of racism came to the fore, that uh, um, racism is prevalent in uh, uh, in, in Phoenix, and it has a negative impact, impact on the lives of the African people in terms of access to economy, public service, uh, services, employment, and so forth and so forth. And inherent in that was this uh, idea that the prejudice emanates far back in 1948 um, when Africans attacked the Indians. And I think the fatal ground was then ready when either through disinformation during that 21 July arrest, but the behind the thinking of the Indians was that the blacks are now coming to do what they did in 1948. And so the issue of racism and prejudice are linked together in this regard. Okay. So the, yeah. All right. No, no, no. I hear you. And history plays a big role in this. Um, I just need to be quite clear, Professor, and, and quite delicate is it your finding that it's Indian people being racist towards black people, or can it be the other way around, or is it both? 
It is. Remember that when you uh, um, when you investigate, um, you inter- remember in the investigation, we're not looking at one group. It was both groups. And at some point in the way we did it was that we, they, 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 we, we interviewed the black people uh, alone and we interviewed the Indians uh, being uh, representatives from the Indian communities alone. And we brought them together to find out, both of them, so that's our strategy, to find out what are the issues. So together they raised these issues and there was debate among us. So this led us to the core issue of racism existing in uh, what they call in Phoenix. We did our own observation, for example. When it comes to places like Amaudi, we, we actually visited there. And we, we saw the, our, on our, with our own eyes the disjuncture between the two communities. But for example, when it comes to schooling, kids in the morning migrate to Phoenix. And in that afternoon, we were in Amaudi, they were migrating back in their numbers, back home. And of course, we interviewed even people around, uh, people who were heading small stores. And they simply said to us, listen, we have no life here. Life is in Phoenix, where they've got ATMs, they've got garages, they've got supermarkets, they've got clinics, they've got schools, jobs, hospitals, and many other amenities. We have nothing. Okay? And that gives a, a very uh, a clear indication mm. of where the things are. Okay, which, which is why in our um, um, recommendations with regard to special planning, we said the, what is important here is not so much as a special planning because when you look at the area of Amaudi, there is no expansion at all. So what we need is uh, integration. It's try to encourage how people can use these com- uh, um, amenities that they have mm. for the common benefit of all. So. so I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to get also to the economic relationship. Would it be the case that one group employs the other group? You will see black people employed by Indian people, but probably never the other way around. That could be the case because that's also historic. Hmm. That's also historic um, that one group has the benefits of uh, access to resources and economy and the other doesn't have. And when you look at that, what is the contributing factor? The special planning of apartheid has a contribution in that. But remember, the special planning of apartheid was also det- was a racist determin- determinant as well. So you can see that uh, the issue of integration, which has, should have been a key, a key uh, um, a program for the, the uh, uh, community living together, was very, very important to make sure that you cannot determine people's um, identity and well-being mm. and who they are only because they don't have the means of survival. They have no access to economy. They are all, um, they are consumers. They are uh, workers. And they cannot own the means of production. And so that must be reversed. Uh, it maybe Phoenix is a, it's a macrocosm of what is likely to be happening throughout the country. So it's a challenge, mm. the biggest challenge that we have to confront all of us. Because we can't break down on issues of racism. We can't break down. Otherwise, we'll never have a social cohesion and nation building that is really germane to the programs of, 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 of democracy. 
In many communities, um, there's been diversity, and I'm going to talk, I'll have to use these terms, but in sort of middle-class white areas, one of the drivers of diversity has been schools. And schools are often anchors of of communities. So children from different communities, black children, will come into the schools, and with them come their parents. And so you'll start to see diversity among the among the the parents and people mixed together and things like that. Is that not happening in Phoenix? From the observation, it could be happening, but the gravity of the matter, the the stark reality of poor black infrastructure Mm. completely and what appears to be the center of development and economic activity in Phoenix, that stark reality itself is glaring. So that even if you have this migration of young people who are going there to study and coming back in the evening, that demonstrates the, the mm. two worlds, so to speak. Mm. We are not, they are divided by a bridge, mm. so to speak, a bridge. Mm. So, so the concerted effort, the message from CRN, is that in terms of giving effect to the mandate of building a cohesive society, which is peaceful, which is based on recognition of our individual humanity, uh, which is uh, um, uh, uh, tolerant, building tolerance, and things mm. like that. These uh, are key uh, programs which we must engage on. Otherwise, we are papering over the cracks over a period of time. Professor David Mosama, so thank you. Chair of the CRL Rights Commission, of course, wrote one of those reports into the violence in Phoenix. 16 minutes to nine, your mediator conversation continues around the situation in Phoenix here on SAFM. Crispin Henson is a former director now of the Centre for Nonviolence in Durban. He's watched the area around there for many years. Crispin, good morning. Hello, good morning, Stephen and your listeners. All of these tensions go back, in some cases, actually, to before apartheid. Why have they endured for so long? Why has there been no integration in Phoenix? Look, the tensions go a long way back, and and it's clear from our history, you know, what led into that. I mean, the the whole history of indenture, how Indian people were treated, often uh, appallingly during indenture, Um, the, 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 the way that colonial and apartheid uh, regimes separated out people, uh, prevented um, and actively intervened to prevent any kind of direct collaboration. So there's that history. And the question is, I think, and and, the, and with that history is trauma. So it's not just history, it's what you remember. And 1949 still looms large over the situation in, in, in Phoenix because of the memories and the pain and the resentment and often like very, very partial uh, understanding of the history. So, you know, 1985, for example, was 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 appalling for, for all black people in the area, but for a specific group of Indian people, it was also appalling. Uh, and, and that has fed into... Uh, the racial resentments and so on. The key thing, though, I think, is about the present, because the, these things are alive and and thriving. And I was actually talking to some young people, uh, young people, because uh, I was designing a, a course for first year students, and I asked them about the experiences of racism. I mean, two things come through loud and clear. One is nobody said, I've got these racial <laughs> feelings of animosity against this group. Nobody said that. And if you look at that uh, commission report, you'll see that there's some people who say, no, no, there isn't a problem. He's not with me. <laughs> Secondly, um, 
quite specific and graphic uh, examples of how racism plays out. Now, the professor mentioned the workplace settings. I mean, the one person was so indignant. He said, nobody calls me. The, the, the managers never call me by my first name. I'm, I'm a brainer, or even at worst, I, I mean, a Bushman. Uh, sure. And then, uh, and and the and the and the uh, African people working with me are called darkies and not by their first name. And then when I take it up and say, "Look, I don't like being called like this," they said, "Oh, it was just a joke. What's wrong with you? Why mm. don't you have a sense of humour?" And it becomes like his mm. his fault for even raising the issue. I mean, I hope there are people listening now. Who, who are in the habit of doing that sort of thing and think, okay, what damage are you doing now mm. to, to the issues around racism? Why are you keeping race and racism alive in this way? What for? Right, Crispin. I'm and I to, think, the, yeah. Mm, just, just be a bit careful about the examples that we use. To bring these communities closer together, and I think this is the key thing. I mean, they, they live next to each other, um, and yet they're still... Um, closer together. And I mean, I know the CRL Commission uh, recommends, for example, sporting tournaments. And I, I felt that was like, like, you know, when I was growing up, that's what people said to me in 1990. You know, we need something deeper than yeah. a sporting tournament, surely. Yeah, I'd like to see programs that uh, that pull people together into direct action on, on problems we face. You know, I was thinking, for example, about uh, uh, cleaning up our waterways. Now, I think that's a significant issue. That takes a lot of, uh, you know, person power. I think we should have programs to fund that and then actually recruit into diverse groups of people and in the process communicate with each other about why is it difficult? What were the experiences I had about that, that made it difficult to work with other people here? I mean, for example, being told by, you know, a family member, beware of these people, they're dangerous. Mm. <laughs> so... Uh, but, in fact, we've been training facilitators at DUT um, to handle those sort of discussions. And that's like, in itself, has been a very illuminating process. Um, it would seem, I mean, I realize that this is kind of part of our, our leftover hangover from apartheid. And things take a long time to change. I think some parts of our country have changed more quickly than others. And uh, we can go into, you know, hours worth of conversations as to why that is. What we can't allow is a situation where this remains the same in Phoenix. Is there any reason to believe anything will change? Uh, you know, we, we, yeah, we can't uh, leave it to the unfolding of socioeconomic forces because in the end, the, those forces are under direct human control and we've got to sort ourselves out. So uh, we've got to change people's ways, the assumptions that people operate on. And that means first that you've got to become aware of what those assumptions are. So, I, I mean, I, it, it could be through politics. It could be within the area of sport. But just to, but to assume that people playing sports with each other means that they like each other is, is, is just wrong. I think it's oversimplified. I mean, sport can be just a mat, uh, as much a matter of war as it is of, of friendship. Mm. Um, so I think but sporting clubs could, for example, be running programs within their clubs to address whatever the issues are. And these are very, very diverse issues um, that then get caught up with issues of race and racism. Race and racism is only one aspect of all of this. Crispin Henson, thank you very much indeed. Do appreciate the time. Former director of the Centre for Nonviolence uh, in Durban. You with SAFM. It's nine minutes now to nine. 
Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Six minutes to nine, the time. Continue your mediated conversation this morning around the CRL report into the violence in Phoenix in 2021. Nom Shado Lubisi in is the communications manager at Media Monitoring Africa. Nom Shado, good morning. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, it's a sign of our times. Please unmute yourself. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Within these reports are findings about disinformation, um, a lot of it on social media. And, and this was clearly deliberate. Uh, people were literally inciting violence on social media. And they're probably doing it in two ways. One, just literally inciting violence. And the other was deliberate disinformation. Did you know these people did this and they're coming to do that when it wasn't true? How important has this kind of disinformation been? I think during the unrest, we got to see, you know, disinformation being an intersectional threat and how it easily, you know, plays um, in terms of amplifying and inciting violence, harassment and hate speech. That in all and in all digital offences, it cuts across in various forms. And I think during that time, we started seeing even the usage, for example, of videos burning buildings from different countries, right, and being imitated as if it's happening in South Africa. And because of the lack of understanding of digital literacy, um, that there is such a thing called disinformation, it was easily believed. And on top of that, because of such a social and vulnerable environment at that time, it literally, um, you know, played on people's anxiety, confusion, and fear because it's now happening in one area. In other provinces, people are not sure. But also in that, you know, in, in Phoenix itself, when you're talking about the WhatsApp voice notes and the messages, clearly even there, I mean, WhatsApp is one of the, the, the platforms that is very difficult when it comes to combating disinformation because it's a direct um, messaging platform. The other thing about this is that the people who were instigating the violence knew what they were doing. They knew if they pushed these buttons, they said these things in WhatsApp groups or whatever, this would be the result. What I'm trying to get to is it was very deliberate, but it was also very organized. Definitely very organized and very deliberate. I mean, you could definitely get that at the end of this, they really want to incite violence. They also want to sow division. And I think we started seeing how um, you know, that deliberate um, usage of narratives and creation can really rile individuals up, particularly within our local uh, landscape in terms of political issues, in terms of social issues, etc. And it, and it understood that at this time, um, you know, if I had to kind of voice it in this manner, it could easily amplify and mobilize the way that they wanted to. And it did that. Um, in this case, very few people have been held responsible. Now, I realize to try and track a voice note can be very difficult to do. But people went on Twitter. We know who these people are. They incited violence. And people haven't been punished for this. And if people aren't punished, if there isn't any capacity that's created to try and punish cases like this, isn't it all just going to happen again? I think the, the, the nitty gritties and the complexity of, of, you know, regulation, content regulation online is it's evident here. Um, for example, with Will 411, when complaints are submitted and they are deemed um, or they are um, reviewed to be uh, mis- and disinformation, we do obviously work, try and ensure that there's takedown notices, etc., and ensuring that those narratives are not going on. However, it's very difficult, for example, when it comes to certain platforms. Um, sometimes you might find that this narrative is taken down on Twitter, X, uh, but it's still thriving on Facebook or vice versa. So it clearly shows that there's a lot that needs to be done around that space, but also how we should thread very carefully when it comes to content regulation. 
Um, we have an election coming up. Hardly, no one's really been held accountable for disinformation uh, during that time. Presumably, this is quite a risk to our elections. People are going to say all sorts of things. Correct. I think it actually even emphasizes and highlights the importance of us starting now. You know, pre-elections is also the time where we start seeing these narratives come about. But I think our partnership with the IEC and together with the framework um, of cooperation that we signed um, with the three big platforms can really assist in terms of mitigating the issue in a speedily manner. Um, because one of the key things that we saw was the longer it stays, even beyond 30 minutes, it's already causing enough damage. Um, so I think those, um, you know, mechanisms in place together with really empowering citizens to be able to navigate these spaces and to be able to report what they see when they are obviously um, thinking or maybe suspecting that this might be missing disinformation. So it's very crucial that number one, users are empowered with literacy, digital literacy, but also with credible information, engaging with news media more, etc. Um, together with understanding the mechanisms and the different um, civil society bodies or organizations that can come together to ensure that we work Work, you know, in a speedy manner to take down those narratives. Norm Shadow, thank you. Norm Shadow, Obisin Kosankulu is the communications manager at Media Monitoring Africa. My thanks also to the former director at the Centre for the Study of Nonviolence, Crispin um, Hensom, and starting us off today, the chair of the Commission for the Promotion and Protection of Cultural, Religious, and Linguistic Communities, Professor David Masoma. We, of course, will be back tomorrow. Being quite a sort of busy show in some ways. All of those conversations for you uh, will be podcast, including the conversations around former President Zuma and, of course, that conversation with Judge uh, Richard Goldstone. You can catch his no comment on the International Court of Justice uh, case as well.